Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and I will be guest hosting on all of the religion podcasts for this very special conversation um, with a very special guest um, who needs little introduction in the field of religious studies. But he is, of course, uh, Dr. Russell McCutcheon, who is University Research Professor and Chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. He is a prolific and impactful figure in the field of religious studies, and we are going to have the opportunity to um, get to know him, get to know what he thinks in a conversational, accessible manner, save you from reading uh, 10 uh, books or inspire you to read 10 books. We'll see. Um, Russell, welcome to the podcast. We'll hope it's inspiring. It'll be inspiring. There's a book. There's a book you've written for just about everybody. We're good. Um, Thanks for having me, Roz. This is very kind of you, and this will be fun. My pleasure. And there seems to be a University of Alabama streak going on on the podcast, and I'm kind of enjoying. There's a certain. You're the third in in this month or month or two, I believe. Uh, Yes. When we uh, when we finish, I'll give you some suggestions for the fourth, fifth, and sixth. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. so tell us a little bit about what inspired you, what pulled you, what drew you to the study of religion. And if you'd like to interlace that, feel free to answer them in succession or together uh, in terms of the study of religion, the academic study of religion, that, that enterprise itself. You know, what is that? Well, um, I'm, I think I have a pretty typical story, at least for a certain generation of scholars certainly older generation than me, it was very typical. And I think it's not that far off for a lot of people today, but it's changing. So my undergrad was in what um, my university, Queen's University in Canada called life sciences. So I was taking undergrad classes in you know, biochem and genetics. I wrote the MCAT. I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. A number of my friends um, uh, became uh, doctors. Um, I was not a great student, didn't fail anything but came really close. I was not a great undergrad student. And um, I grew up in the United Church of Canada, the largest Protestant denomination in Canada. And the um, minister for the church that my parents went to, that I grew up in, went to Queen's Theological College. And it seemed uh, theology and religion seemed important, big topics. And I got interested in that. So I got a BA in life sciences. Didn't do my last year, so I got a BA instead of a Bachelor of Science and uh, did a Master of Divinity degree. 
very early on in that, it became apparent to me that I didn't really have an interest in doing that, but religion was an interesting thing to me. So I finished that degree, got married during that time to my wife, Marsha. Uh, she had another year to go to get, earn her Bachelor of Ed once I finished. So I earned a, a one-year Master of Theology because it was a thesis degree. The MDiv is a professional degree. Um, there's really not a lot of research. So I wanted that experience because I wanted to apply to a PhD. Um, after that, applied to Toronto's PhD, University of Toronto. They accepted me into the MA instead, seeing all that theology background, as progressive as I thought I was. Uh, I was frustrated that they accepted me into the master's, but it made sense two or three years later because I saw as much as I thought I was in the study of religion, I wasn't yet, and it took time to develop um, to come to the set of interests that I eventually had in that a dissertation, which became my first book. So I, I don't think that's necessarily the track that a lot of people take today. It was one time the dominant and maybe the only track a lot of scholars of religion took. And then you found scholars of religion who were or were not, you know, to whatever degree alienated from or still working through a, a whole set of theological issues. Um, I think that's still more prominent today than a lot of people think, but it's certainly not the only uh, uh, way of finding us. In fact, I think a lot of undergrads now find us because they're disillusioned with their first major. And it's not like they came here necessarily interested in becoming ministers and then gravitated away from that. So I think more are changing. To the second question, then, the way that would segue to that, perhaps, is that there's a lot of people that think the religious studies versus theology conversation that once so defined the field um, in North America, especially from like the 70s, 80s, 90s, is passe now because people enter the field in different ways. I don't think it's nearly as passe as some people think it is. Maybe you could judge that if you know anything about my work. But I think the larger conversation is really uh, a classic humanities, of which I would, I would think so the theology is almost a subset, versus a more social scientific approach, I'm thinking is more a defining way of talking about the field now. But there, that's a little... Yeah. Is that, is that a good start? Oh, absolutely. It's your... I'm interested in both your personal journey and also, of course, I'm going to touch on the topic of, you know, and we'll we'll, we'll deepen that topic shortly about the study of religion and, and what that means and how one does that, et cetera, et cetera. And as most of my listeners know, I mean, it's 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 typically organic for me. I have a couple of ideas in my head where of where the where where the oil is if I dig, <laughs> but 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 you know I may be surprised. Um, but that was that's a brilliant segue insofar as your personal coming to the study of religion really evidences uh, much of um, what the study of religion is or what it's not. And so when you when you mention in passing, and our specialist colleagues will certainly know this, but many of our generalists may not. When you mention in passing. The, the conversation or the debate or the tension uh, uh, between theology and religious studies, you know, what do you mean by that? What's going on there? Well, it's traditionally, and uh, certainly in North America and Western Europe, it's uh, largely a, a, a Christianity, an elite discourse on Christianity approach to religion that, that comes by the name theology for a lot of people. More specifically, in many cases, it's a specific subset of Protestantism that comes to stand in for that larger term, but then there would be conversations on whether the set of issues, the general set of issues cut across 
um, what are often called religious traditions. And, and thus there's a, a larger quote unquote theological approach to the study of religion. Don Weeb, who's one of the people who trained me would uh, distinguish a, 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 a denominational kind of based approach. I think he called that a, uh, upper C confessional theology, and then a lower C confessional, you know, a more broadly, what I would call more humanistic, you know, now we're talking about human nature as a transcendental referent. So to come all the way back, in, in our field, there's longstanding debates that go back to the late 19th century about whether one can talk about study, uh, religion, in a way separate from how um, elite participants uh, in the traditions talk about it themselves. And the term theology for some people, I guess, broadly would stand in for that kind of elite insider discourse on uh, the faith, uh, the ritual, the institution, etc. And And so the debate goes that non-participants have something to say uh, based on different frameworks, different sets of assumptions. And then we ask whether these two things clash or not, the degree to which participants themselves can engage in the study of religion. So there's a, as you know, right, there's a large continuum of views and conversations on those topics. On one end, they are complementary activities. These people are conversation partners. These are the ways we hear the, conver the, the discussion going. On the other far end, you know, um, the, the scholar is for some people, uh, this is not a metaphor I use, but it's likened to the, the doctor who can study people without any of their conscious input whatsoever, right? It's not really about a competing conversation with the so-called participant. And then in between those two, I think those would count as the far ends of the poles of the conversation. There's any number of ways of construing how um, members of groups do or do not engage with the scholars who are studying them. Is that a framing absolutely. of it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially for a broader audience. Um, it, it, it's sort of like, um, I, I realize that I'm currently giving a public talk where you are, I'm facilitating a public talk, and yet there are a bunch of specialists in the room. So we, we sort of toggle between the two, but keep it as accessible as possible um, because the specialists, of course, will know will be familiar with your work um, by and large. Um, Speaking of your work, perhaps let's turn to that. You have a number of monographs out um, that do a number of things. But would you characterize, um, how might you characterize what it is you're most interested, your, your research interests, or what it is you most accomplish? 30,000 foot view, and as I said to a guest recently, overgeneralizing is not only permitted, but welcome on podcasts. Right. So uh, how would you characterize that body of work? Early on, in my PhD, I was in a philosophy of religion track, like all PhD programs, and usually based on the happenstance of the specialists that they happen to hire, they have the tracks that one can go into. So in the study of religion, it's often, uh, you know, tracks based on different religious traditions or different time periods within them. I study early Christianity. No, I stutter, I'm Americanist. You know, there's these classic tracks. So philosophy of religion is often among the tracks, and that's what I was going into. And that soon morphed into an interest in um, what a lot of people started calling method and theory in the 80s and 90s, methodology and theory. In other words, an interest in uh, how we do our work and the larger sets of assumptions about religion that drive our work. Um, 
religion is an illusion of the oppressed. Uh, you know, let's be classic Marxists. Well, that's a particular theory of religion if we're going to use theory in a kind of a broad sense, right? Um, and that's going to animate a certain kind of work, a certain kind of way of studying religion. So is that the kind of scholar you are? As opposed to, so my interest became very much method and theory, uh, something that Toronto for a brief period of time in the late 80s became known for. Um, uh, a small group of us came out of the program with a set of interests. So early on in my work, and I think throughout much of my work, um, I'm sometimes amazed I've had a career. I was very concerned about this early on. Um, it's evident that I'm not really interested in religion. Oh, sure, I can te teach courses on this or that thing. But I'm more interested in scholars of religion. I'm more interested in how the category of religion, and this you know, view has changed and 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 over over my career but generally if i look back i think it's always been an interest in how groups of people use the term to name sort and rank their worlds aspects of the worlds i'm religious are you are you religious i'm spiritual i'm not religious this word gets used an awful lot in liberal democracies it's now entrenched in governing documents like constitutions bill of rights um, so how does this term work in day-to-day -day social life? How does it work in legal settings? How does it work in governance settings? How does it work in taxation settings? And the, the interest I think all along in, in, in expressed or experimented with in different settings and thus the different things I've written is always an interest in a broader interest in classification. Um, a broader interest in how classificatory systems that we use, sometimes mundane and just commonsensical, right? Other times maybe loaded, we think, with great portent or consequence. How we use them to navigate a world, to make a world that we think is habitable, how contestable that world is, despite how self-evident we think it is to distinguish raw from cooked, how contestable that is, how high the stakes can be. People, after all, go to wars over seemingly very little things, if you really take a look at it, right? And thus, to think how those broad interests can be exemplified in, you know, because I only got so much time in the day. In one discrete site, this category of religion that we use, that so many of us think is inherently linked to some deeply abiding, non-historical feeling or somethingness, whatever your definition is, that always struck me as a particularly meaty site to study what's at stake in saying something is or isn't religious. So many possible follow-ups to that, but what comes to mind is a tension that I've experienced throughout my studies um, with religious studies in terms of our understanding of the discipline and how just about everybody outside of religious studies understands the discipline or not. And whenever, and perhaps it's just the adjective religious in English, which ironically it means particularly uh, related to that, that transcendent numinous, that beyond, that soulfulness, that spirituality, however we think of that that's not quite anchored in history, religious in English means tends to connote that sort of piety, if you will. Uh, and so 
<laughs> when one says, oh, I, you know, I've stopped saying I have degrees in religion, actually, or, or, or religious studies, because, you know, at one point, this this lovely uh, woman, she was uh, an elderly woman, I said to her that, you know, I was doing religious studies, those was my master's at the time at the University of Toronto, and she said to me, your parents must be so proud. And you and replied, she... no, they don't understand what I do. <laughs> Well, you know, she thought it was some kind of priest training or some sort of training in that sense of, of, of a, you know, a virtuosic practitioner sort of training. And so and that would segue to all the stories that scholars of religion tell about um, um, lying about their profession when they're on jets going to conferences and the creative things they come up with to say to people to um, it's a bit of a joke in the field, right? To to avoid that <laughs> assumption or conversation, right? I, I study religion, and then it opens a door for to be asked about. I'm a I'm a religion prof, so of course I have a you know you, of course you'll have an opinion on everything from ISIS to you know et cetera et cetera et cetera. Um, and, and so, actually, part of part of why I've stopped using that label is because I, I realize that as my first love was literature. And perhaps second loves history, philosophy, and and to do that in the South Asian context, religious studies was the place to go. And it took me a while to realize I study narrative, I study stories, I love stories, uh, I love understanding the impact and the functioning of stories, and 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 how to read stories, how we read stories, so I can really relate to this idea of there is this first order data that you're looking at, you know, the the text or the the practice or what have you, and then it's thinking about how we engage it, you know. Do we engage it? Whether we engage it? What do we think of it when we engage it? So what do you say about the tension between how uh, religionists understand the category of religion, the academic, the, the categories of religion, the academic study of religion, and how that translates to just about everyone beyond the field? You know, what would you say about that? Um, given the things I think about the field, I'd see the problems that you've set up in the field, out of the field, as characterizing the field as well. It, it depends what kind of scholar of religion you are, those same conversations happen, um, or same debates or misunderstandings or whatever we wanna call them. Um, when you say this is a podcast that has a definite generalist, hopeful appeal, you know, the kind of people who might turn on to listen to this, it's my hope that that's what we all are as scholars. My problem with the field, one of my 18 problems, I'll categorize them, right, is... We've got time, Russell. <laughs> too many of us think we're specialists. Um, in other words, too many of us fail to understand that we're making a shift that you just put on the table. We're studying narratives. We're not studying religious texts. We're studying how groups work. We're not studying religious communities. In other words, the self-evidently important nature of our data for many of us in my field, I think, our field, overwhelms us. And we are unable to see it as a case study where we have perhaps invested years of training to be able to access the language or to be able to get to the people. Yes, yes, yes. I bow to that specialized knowledge. That's very important. But too many of us, I think, fail to realize that the payoff is using that information, our findings from that little Petri dish where we happen to do our work, and generalizing it in such a way that we now have an insight into something about how narrative functions in human communities, how storytelling functions, how origins tales function, how uh, rule-governed behavior, let's call it ritual, but we can, you know, how that functions. 
because again, to come back, I think that the presumption that dominates my field is that our object of study is self-evidently interesting. It has a gravitational force of its own because it's the sacred after all, you know, what term are they going to use? Let's put whatever term in there. And so I think it's an impediment that actually isolates our field, that suddenly we are set aside from all the other social sciences or human, human, or human sciences because we special study something special. Instead of actually, no, we study something incredibly mundane, people doing stuff. Well, we got to narrow that down to a particular subset of the stuff because we don't have all day. But it's that ability to generalize to the larger insight about how groups work, for example, that I fear too many of us in the field don't make that shift. So to think then about people outside the field who, you know, might be a parent of a student who wants to major in religious studies or might see a book on a shelf, um, I have trouble blaming them for not understanding the field because so many within the field, I think, fail to see that the real payoff of the field is in seeing our work as ordinary, but nonetheless, really interesting. You know, the people we study are just ordinary people doing the things they do. Well, it's not bowling. That's an ordinary activity. It's not making pasta. That It's a particular subset. And I'm hoping the payoff they would see is, well, it tells us something about how groups work. And we have something to bring to the conversation when we bump into anthropologists, sociologists, even policymakers. You know, what's the area that you want your work to have effect in? But again, the category of religion is so well associated, so long associated with exemplariness, specialness, set-apartness, distinctness, uniqueness. You know, we have all these, they're not synonyms, but I think they all float together in a way that so many of us in our field can't make that shift to see that, as I, as I would say using your words, that we're all kind of generalists. Our skill is not in our expertise. Our skill is in generalizing from that to the broad insight that I would hope people who know nothing about my data could make use of. Making accessible and transferable the fruits of our labor. Whether it's to a wider reading public, that's a particular type of exercise, or whether it's to scholars who are deeply trained in Tibetan Buddhism, who are deeply trained in Vedic traditions, who are deeply trained, but at the end of the day, we're all studying pretty similar stuff. You need different skills to get at it here or there. Yes, yes, yes. It's going to take years to acquire them. But we're all studying, you know, how texts were used in communities to do something, how certain behavioral systems are used in contemporary communities to do something. What's the something to contest the group, to undermine the group, to reinforce the group, to authorize a subset of community within the group? There's a relatively stable set of things that I think we're all kind of studying. What comes to mind is um, actually the hosting of the Indian Religions podcast um, and speaking to a number of scholars and there are two, there are a number, but two primary strategies uh, in terms of the kinds of questions I asked. I mean, there's other strategies in terms of holding space for a person, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the two primary strategies in terms of the types of questions I asked or the directions, barring, um, you know, sensing gold based on a response, are making it accessible to anyone who is remotely interested in ideas and, and, and remotely fluent in the English language and uh, making it um um, uh, uh, making it 
applicable. So 30,000 foot view of what is it that we're doing. And uh, fascinatingly for me, I've had probably half a dozen uh, tongue in cheek comments via email or, or in the, after the podcast saying, you know, now I understand what my book, what my book is about. <laughs> so there's, there are these moments where you, yes, this is really important. This Vedicist work that you're doing. I'm just picking up a random example, yeah. uh, but ethics of force, you know, ethics of violence, or or it's applicable on, on a broader level. And it seems to me um, that in the cases, um, in, in almost all the cases, uh, um, uh, perhaps that that larger clinching idea isn't readily apparent to the scholar because the person might may well be in the weeds. Um, but what I'm uh, sensing or suspecting from what you're saying is that it's more than just being in the weeds, that it has to do with um, conceptions of uh, religion versus philosophy, history, um, 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 sociology. Uh, what would you say to that? I think there's a self-evidence of our object of study that is 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 characterizes almost any scholar's work, right? You think about to become, to get a PhD, how many years of study do you have under your belt? Sure, you started out as a generalist undergrad, but for whatever reason, you know, too much pizza the night before, I often say, whatever reason, you got really interested in some, some poet and you started reading more of the British 19th century, who knows, right? And you eventually worked your way to a master's and a PhD on just one sonnet, hell no, one verse within one sonnet, one word within, like the whole point of specialization. And I get that's how our degrees work. So for a bunch of reasons, a bunch of inducements, a bunch of structural constraints, we end up being siloed is the term that we now use in the academy, right? experts on very particular things and the world needs experts on particular things but if we add to that the category religion let's work our way out of 19th century british poetry right where it's so commonly assumed to be naming something really 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 special special before i ever stepped on the site you know that everybody just knows indiana jones special coming out of the ark special right this is the view i think that a lot of people whether in the larger public or even at academy have you know, we're we're brought up in the larger public you heard my biography we we come from places then i think we have a particular kind of inducement to see our discrete thing as so important that making the shift to my discrete thing that i took years to master is really exemplary of a broad thing that we see in a lot of other places too and I can contribute to that conversation with my discrete thing. That's a very difficult move to make. So thus, when you talk about now I know what my book is about, I think we have tons of classes, undergrad, grad, tons of courses, ton, you know, all the moments of this academic field like any, where the structure is working us away from the general comment, the general insight. And so you have an entire book on some 14th century painting. Great, great. But it's not written for anyone who's not an expert in that already. And just a little bit of a shift, though I think it's a tremendously difficult shift to make. It takes training. It takes uh, letting go of a lot of ego at some point, because a lot of the status and perks of the field are linked to that specialization. A little bit of a shift 
suddenly a reader who knows nothing about that is going to stick with you for 300 pages because they see the broad applicable insight that they can work with in a domain that has nothing to do with that painting. So I enjoy academia a great deal. I enjoy scholarship. I enjoy studying. There are other parts of my being that I also enjoy. And um, I think I have, you know, relative intelligence. I don't think I'm particularly gifted at writing grants, but I ended up getting what they call the super shark in Canada in my first year of my, my PhD thesis. I, and, you know, the nuts and bolts were there, right? So, um, you know, communication of, of, of the, 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 the need for uh, the project, the, 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 the supports for the project, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the one thing for some reason that I never lose sight of, and it served me so well, and it's really coming to the foreground of my mind in hearing you speak, and I actually didn't quite make that connection before this moment, is that I was always able to communicate why someone should care about this. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, 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 uh, Valmiki Ramayana or Devi Mahatmya, this, this oh, great goddess text, yada, 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 uh, 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 ethics of violence. When are we justified to discharge our weapons? Under what circumstances? All of a sudden, exactly the same data, exactly the same paper, perhaps, but just that frame, they all of a sudden, now they're listening. And, and that's a difficult from- shift for a lot of people to make because it means you got to kind of let go to some extent all that hard one specialization and see it in service of a broader set of issues that other specialists also might be interested in. I think that's a challenge. You know, this is what I'm riffing on here. Anyone who knows my work or knows the field might know. This is Jonathan Z. Smith, um, uh, very influential University of Chicago scholar, passed away a few years ago, deeply influential of my thinking, right? This is the his so what question. Like, great, do all that work. But by the way, so what? Like, what if I'm not trained in that language? What if I'm not trained in that particular fieldwork location? Is there anything for me in this work? And maybe some stuff there isn't. You know, maybe some scholarship, it's got to be on this particular carbon at this particular place on the benzene ring. But I'm guessing that a lot of the work we do, there's much broader application if we can just crack that nut. And a lot of us have a challenge doing that. Amen. Pun intended. <laughs> um, I I could not agree more insofar as um, I was invited to present at Madison, Wisconsin at the, the annual South Asia conference that's been going on for 50 years now. And interestingly enough, I didn't invite, uh, I didn't speak on my research. They had me speak on my career. What career? My professorship? No, <laughs> this self-employed scholar thing that seems to be working for me, or at least so productive enough to catch folks' attention. Um, and what I was trying to communicate to anybody who was in the room, who was um, either a junior scholar or a, um, a PhD student in the field, is that the skills and even the content that we learn is applicable to so many, many industries, many and I said, every time you hear an expert speak on something related to your field, it's never someone with a degree in religion, you know, on, on television. But you, it's not it's not people with degrees in religion that talk about issues of religion, it seems to be the case. And there's so many, many ways to apply what we learn in meaningful ways, um, particularly government policy, all kinds of consultancy. Um, you said something in passing that I find especially fascinating in light of this um, the, I guess alt ack career. Uh, I was going to go there in my head. That I, that term, we got to talk about it. 
Go ahead. Well, let's, you know what, then before I even ask the question, why don't, why don't we talk about the term? Let me hear what it you, you have to say about that. I think a lot right. of people- I, I, I never use it. I, I, I find it disdainful actually, but, but what would you use instead? Right now in this academic job market, if we assume that you're getting a BA, an MA, a PhD in our field, in order to become a tenure track professor, that, that classic story that a lot of people were brought up on, if that's what we think academia is about, then I'm in the alt-ac job, not you. The majority of people getting PhDs now are finding work, having to find work out for a variety of reasons, one of which is the incredibly poor job market, which we could talk about also if you want. And they're finding work either being scholars in alternate venues or leaving the academy behind completely and getting jobs in 18 different areas. And while some of them are probably bitter about that, it's not difficult to imagine. A number are probably very happy they got a PhD, um, use it every day in unique ways, but just wish they had gone through doctoral programs where the program, the requirements, the supervisor, the, the structure understood what counts as a dissertation. Are there internships? Understood that they're training people for broad careers in the midst of the specialization required of an advanced research degree. So to come all the way back, Alt-Ac, and I understand why that term came about, uh, how it was used, but now so few people are getting hired into tenure track positions that um, we either have to so broaden the term academia now to mean perpetual contingent faculty who will have entire careers doing that, well, that wasn't part of the gig they thought they were signing up for when they got the PhD. So I think, if anything, if we retain all that, we have to alternative academic careers, right? Alt hyphen AC. We have to retain it in the exact opposite way, which means a tenure track job is the alternative career for many people today. And that's not a story a lot of people in the field want to tell, I'll be frank. Yeah, I've never resonated with the term Altac, and I, I really don't resonate with the term independent scholar. Part of that just because of, I think, the uh, internalized baggage uh, at one point of that being code for failed academic type thing, yeah. uh, where where in a time where it may have meant more, one could not find a job as opposed to now where there is not a job to find and there are brilliantly trained um, scholars and, and scholar teachers who, who they're, they're all dressed up with no place to go, so to speak. Um so, so I don't know what term it's, it's, it's a work in progress for me. I do a number of things, but in terms, I definitely identify as an academic without question. Um, and there's nothing independent about what I do. Just the contrary in my particular niche in that there's a lot of networking that goes on a lot of, you know, wheelings and dealings with a number of professors throughout the Western Academy. Um, and so two, two terms that came to mind for me, I presented a talk um, on this very topic at the University of Calgary in 2020, and uh, it was called the self-employed scholar, mm -hmm. what, that might, what that might look like. Um, uh, there was a question at one point, if I recall correctly, about, uh, from a very uh, very well-intentioned uh, administrator there who was in charge of um, shepherding graduate students, perhaps the grad director at the time. But, you know, how they were intrigued by the content of the talk and it apparently resonated and they, they wondered, well, how, how do we, you know, how do, how do we prepare students for this? And, you know, 
at the time I thought, you know, how could someone who's only ever known the tenure track and was trained for the tenure track be begin to be prepared? And at the time I thought, mate, it's kind of sort of unfair to expect your your supervisor who only knows how to be a tenure track prof career wise to 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 train you in this. But it it sounds to me like you might have a more nuanced approach where you feel that faculty might be able to better prepare um, yeah. PhD. Oh, so many things, um, uh, Raj. Um, Vayatuna and I, so one of my colleagues here, <clears throat> we, we um, co-chair uh, one of the program units in our regional conference that happens, and it's been virtual the last few you know, COVID years. So last year, we invited um, three PhDs in our field, early career PhDs from U.S. schools who um, work outside uh, university settings. Uh, one is, uh, like yourself, an independent scholar working with grants and a variety of things, but doing other things as well. Um, one uh, works in local politics, um, and one works in uh, tech. And it was a very interesting conversation. Too few people signed on. So after the five of us co-wrote a paper on this, a bit of a manifesto for how we think PhD programs ought to change, and a bit, uh, trying not to blame people, trying to make it constructive. And... Um, that's now the um, cornerstone of a collection of essays that's just happening. So it won't be out probably for a year, year and a half, where, where I'm editing it, the book, and we've invited um, department chairs or senior faculty in some of the U.S. main doctoral degree granting programs to, you know, quote, unquote, work with that paper, use it as a springboard to my hope to kickstart a bit of a conversation in our field about this because I don't see it happening anywhere. And what's the this the conversation's about? Um, I left Canada to get a job in the US. I've never had a job interview in Canada, no jobs. So the late 80s, early 90s, this was a problem. This is a longstanding problem that has dramatically heightened post-2008 mortgage collapse, post-COVID, budget cuts, it's gotten much, much worse. I don't want to demean how bad it is now, but there's nothing new about now to me, apart from utter severity. So given my age and the amount of time I've been in the field, there's very few people in the field older than me now, just probably a few, I'm 61. So nobody in the field doesn't know this is a problem. Now, maybe they were in an academic area that landed them a job directly because everybody needed a, an Americanist or I don't know what. But they had classmates who struggled. They have classmates who left academia in the 80s and 90s. So there's no one, it seems to me, who should be surprised by this in our field. So the indictable part, if there's one, is that more people have not been proactive in doctoral degree programs over the last 20 years to reinvent them, to see what was coming. Now that it's here, I hope it's not too late, but I hope more and more people are eager to reinvent doctoral programs in the humanities, which it'd be great if they could be like they were 50 years ago, <laughs> but we're in an environment, an economic political environment where they're not. And whether we ever go back to that, open question, but why does somebody earn a PhD in an area, even if they're funded, not going into debt, but that's a huge issue too, but let's bracket that. When it's extremely likely they will not ever get a tenure track job, extremely likely, right? 
the paper that we wrote, there's all kinds of reasons to still earn that degree. Hopefully not going into debt, bracket that. But they're all going to be back to that earlier conversation we had, broader application. And that doesn't mean that you don't write a detailed dissertation on this particular word in that particular text or whatever, but it means you're constantly cognizant of the larger payoff. You know, what is this about? And doesn't mean we reinvent the dissertation. Doesn't mean a student graduates from a PhD with many more, whether there's a dissertation or not, when many more discrete projects they've done that they can demonstrate certain skills to employers that they know how to do X or Y. Does it mean internships? Does it mean tracks within PhDs? I'm not a big fan of tracks. I think everybody in a PhD probably should know how to do this. So to come all the way back, my department does not have a PhD. We have a master's degree. It's six years old. It's not hugely old. From the get-go, why does the world need another master's degree in religious studies? Well, we have a certain social theory approach shared by many faculty, so that's going to be a cornerstone of it. Well, what's the other cornerstone? Well, for us, it was public humanities, morphing more into digital humanities, computational, big data. But how can we give all the students who leave here a toolbox, regardless of what they do? And we've had students go into PhD programs, but we've had a number. You'll become archivists, work in uh, International Student Center on our very campus. One of our students got a job there after doing an internship in the program. So we need internships. They need practical digital tools that they can use. This is not the only way to go, but we've tried to invent an MA suitable for people who want a terminal liberal arts MA to do who knows what with it. I think the same model can be used in doctoral programs. The stakes are a lot higher longer than a two-year MA, the debt you might go into, but to reinvent these programs so that yes, we're training future faculty, but no, the majority of our students are not going to be copies of ourselves as faculty. But there's a lot of resistance among faculty, as you just said when you started this. They're trained in a certain kind of way of thinking about who they are, what they are, what they're doing when teaching students. And there's probably a lot of resistance among them to think I'm training a student in this doctoral program who's potentially going to work in industry. We don't know how to do that. And I think it's very lamentable. And I think it's a real, I personally think it's the biggest problem in the field right now. I'll be frank, because I don't see how the field, my air quotes around this thing, continues to exist if we can't solve this. That sure, the Ivy League doctoral programs might continue to exist. I'm not sure why people will pursue MAs if they're not reinvented in this more general way. And suddenly we learn that the field ends up being service departments at the BA level and is that our future? I hope it's not. So at a professional level, the way these faculty will hopefully keep their own jobs. At the end of the day, it's probably about them keeping their own jobs, figuring out how to keep a PhD program viable, an MA program viable. But back to the where we started, I think, the discourse on specialization is so powerful, there are inducements for faculty probably never to think that much about any of this. Because this is what I study, this is what I teach on, this is what my next book is on. 
And to have the conversation we're having, I think, requires a lot of jump starting. Yeah, I will say that um, I've been, um, without question, I think you're right that there would be some resistance or, or perhaps just um, a, a bit of willful ignorance of, of the situation at times. But I will say that in the last, like, for example, the success I've had um, independently, you know, replacing a essentially tenure track uh, income and probably having, you know, as much recognition and productivity as any junior scholar in the field could want. Um, um, the grass is always greener, right? Uh, I tease a, a colleague of mine who I, I, I say to him, like, you know, I've got a total crush in your career. You're an alternate universe of of me, but at the academy. Um, he also does administration and a bunch of other things. And we're approximately the same age. And he's like, and he's like, yeah, no, I love my job, but you've got a good, you've got a good, you know, stay independent. Um, you know, times have changed. And um, I have actually been in touch with a number of senior scholars through the podcast um, and beyond who are much more open to this. And I think what's happened is they have bright, driven students who they know probably won't land a job because there is no job to land in the way that they can, they've conceived of a job in the past. And I think the resistance you speak of notwithstanding, it's certainly there because it threatens, as you mentioned in passing, the status and perks of a particular uh, trajectory. Nevertheless, I've never seen people more open to that. The fact that Calgary wanted to me, me to do a talk on that to service their graduate students, the fact that um, Madison flew me out to do a talk on that to service uh, their community. Um, I have in the back of my brain at some point to just do an online course or something that costs nothing or next to nothing, um, where I just share strategies for monetizing expertise uh, as a public intellectual. And and whatever I mean, whoever needs it can come to it. But um, we perhaps we can we can speak um, more specifically about this after the podcast today. But um, I certainly would pledge my sword to whatever. I'm very passionate about sharing what's worked for me. Uh, but I'm not proselytizing. I mean, people knock on my yeah. door and they ask. So uh, the you know, challenge happily... would, be, would be whether Calgary or Madison uh, are they doing something other than bringing you into talk? And that's great. They did that. But are they reinventing what a dissertation is? Are they establishing internships that have nothing to do with religion? Make that shift from content to skills, what we talked about earlier in this conversation, right? Are they figuring out ways to do that for credit as part of the degree program? You don't have to do it. You can choose to do it. Like there's a number of very practical, are, are they celebrating? This was from one of the uh, people in that co-writing that paper I talked about earlier. Put this on the table. Are they celebrating the achievements of their alumni who don't have tenure track jobs. A lot of programs aren't. Like you're working in industry, what a fantastic thing. And, and are they bringing them back to talk? Are they, it's, it's, like, it's like the shift a number of programs made in the last decade or more that we have to have CV writing workshops and sample job interview. Like that was good, but that doesn't cut it anymore because the vast majority of students are not even going into that world. And so are they making the kind of institutional programmatic changes to help the students succeed in these other worlds is, is where, as the old saying, where the rubber meets the road, I think. Oh, we'll see what comes of it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, Madison wants me to come back at some point. So I, I imagine... They I imagine there are, I imagine that there are, there, there are, I mean, uh, um, I had Anthony Cerulli on the podcast and he, he 
he jumped at the opportunity to have me come out for this because he quite sees and values the need on behalf of his students. And I imagine that we can perhaps kickstart something in a couple of places that can be a model perhaps for those who are interested. And more than more than for the sake of the students, which of course is deeply important to me, I suspect you're right. And I felt this for some time for the sake of our, our field, actually, the future of our field. Um, you said something in passing just now, you know, one of the initiatives that you recommended or uh, uh, perhaps they're all listed in your in the publication you talked about, but one of the initiatives that you recommended were internships, but not with religion. Can you give me an example of what that might look like? You know, here in the U.S. at least a long time ago, like 25 years ago, maybe more, this um, service learning, this kind of designation got really, really hip. A lot of schools working very hard, you know, because sooner or later your school is going to have to convince your public university is going to have to convince the state legislature that you're relevant and contributing, right? So service learning. We need these accounting students going out and working with you know, nonprofits to set up their books or something. And it's a practical, real-world experience. You can imagine, right? And you probably know more about, you know as much about this as I do. In our field, it became a challenge, right? So Sure, you could send the student out to do some field work in a community. That's not service learning. But back to the theology, religious studies distinction, we're not sending students out to work in churches or mosques or they're like, what are we doing? So it's been in, in some ways an uninvented area for some people in our field. Um, now we have this notion of applied religion that some school, schools are using. And often it seems to me that we see that developing in the so-called helping professions, where there's a presumption that the content we learn about has application maybe in, in healing settings, in death and dying settings, in ethics settings. I still see the content kind of ruling that conversation. Instead of making the shift to the skills, we're teaching how to students how to deal with competing viewpoints. We're teaching students how to compare things in a non-evaluative way. We're teaching students how to um, uh, listen for things in people's self-reports that tell them information the self-reporter might not know that they're conveying. We're teaching them all kinds of so-called critical thinking skills. You know, to put a finer edge on it than just that term critical thinking. If that's what we're doing and we just happen to be doing it at this deep dive site into this particular ancient Jewish text. Or if that's what we're doing, and we just happen to be doing it at this deep dive site in this particular you know, uh, Indonesian group today. Well, if that's what we can see ourselves doing, then let's get internships where those skills become evident. And it's not that the person has this or that language, it's that they can deal with this or that issue in a community. And so once we make, and this is maybe one of the themes to the whole conversations we had, once we make that shift, as I call it, you know, with my Jonathan Smith influence in me, then in RMA, we're setting up internships with all kinds of different offices on campus based on the student interest. Is this a site where you can apply some of these skills you're learning? So currently, again, it's in a master's. We've had students in the Center for Instructional Technology on campus, you know, the Blackboard Learn people who help faculty. We've had internships in the international student, I'm pointing across the way of my window here, 
um, where the student got a job. We have students helping the university revise its website and its marketing team. We've had students with the university museums. We've had students with the University of Alabama Press um, getting practical experience on publishing. We've had students with a, uh, an Alabama humanities magazine. We've had students with, like the list kind of goes on and on. Not all of our MA students do it, but especially those who don't see themselves applying to PhDs, they're getting a little taste of a practical setting where, surprise, surprise, this deep dive into content specific to our field has ironic application elsewhere, even though the application is not at the level of data or content. I don't see why doctoral programs can't be doing that in spades. Um, I don't think it's just, you know, uh, the engineering undergrad programs that have co-ops. <laughs> I don't think that's the only place where this can happen. But again, to come all the way back to the study of religion or the larger setting we're often put in, the so-called humanities, the rhetoric of the deeply important and significantly abiding human spirit expressed in this or that work is a powerful rhetoric that I think swims against the moves we were just talking about. So, so many profs in the humanities broadly, I think, feel they're completely out of their depth thinking the kinds of things you and I have just talked about when, back to you, now I know what my book is about, right? That example you said, just a little bit of a click that might take you decades of thinking to, to make, suddenly it all kinds of shifts. And I really do think that that's the future of the field if we're going to survive. Future of an illusion. <laughs> no, definitely. That is the future of the field. If for there to be a future of the field, I could not agree more. Never in a thousand years did I think I'd be working for myself or self-employed. I've always had jobs, always had work, always did well in jobs, always got promoted. I worked in the private sector on and off during degrees. And uh, a professorship was my dream job. It really was. I, I did the PhD because I, I love my subject area. And it was, it was a ticket ticket to teach, to teach at a different level, because I was originally going to be a high school teacher. I really wanted to teach undergrads. Now I teach continuing studies. <laughs> Either way, it was my ticket to teach. And um, never in a thousand years did I see myself working for myself. And um, uh, after a few years of doing that, it is abundantly clear that I'm built. <laughs> I'm built for it by, um, by temperament in many ways. Uh, and uh, my training is so applicable to what I do. Uh, I'm currently doing a, a journal article. I'm writing. I mean, none of my research is funded. Somehow, uh, two books and the public books. I guess three books, but three books and probably I don't know uh, a dozen, a dozen, dozen and a half articles and chapters. None of it's funded. The only piece that's funded right now is one thing that I'm doing for the International Committee for the Red Cross on ethics of violence and Hinduism. And, you know, like, who would even think that, right? That, that, you know, someone would want to throw you some cash to study Sanskrit narrative, which you're doing anyways, um, with the lens to the ethics of violence, which you're doing anyways, but that's valuable to them because it contributes towards their uh, discourse within the organization. And, and it'll translate really to potentially how their work is done on the ground. But connections like that, one would not begin to think of from within a religious studies program necessarily. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I suspect that much of the 
much, if not all, of the barrier in this context that we're referring to for you has to do with the category of religion or suppositions about religion or how we think about religion. Would that be the case? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think for, <clears throat> excuse me, I think for many of us in in day-to-day -day life, popular culture, let alone the academy, as I said earlier, the category of religion is reserved for things we think are extra super special, extra super different, set apart, existentially, ontologically, whatever word we want to use. So any kind of specialty in that material means there's a relatively good chance that you buy that big time. And that might be a key way that you understand yourself, your significance, your rank and place in the world, what it is you do, the importance and relevance of your work. And so I think we're in a field that, you know, I think there's analogies. It's not difficult to imagine an old school literary critic who thinks literariness is a self-identified inherent value to a work. You know, I think that's the realm I'm talking. Uh, a lot of people in lit crit settings don't think that anymore, but, you know, scratch the surface, it's not difficult to find still. And that's got to be a really hard thing to let go of. You know, I have an anecdote about a uh, an early career person trying to get a job in in Asian religions when it wasn't apparent that the administration would even authorize the search. And the person said, but it's Asia. Like, of course, they're gonna, yeah, that's important to study. And I remember my reply was every department in our college thinks there's self-evidently important things to study. Like how many Shakespearean scholars did they have over there 30 years ago that they might want to get back? You know, they don't have seven anymore. I don't know what number they had. So my guess is that the administration is going to make this decision on entirely different grounds. It'll have nothing to do with how important it is because everything is important to everybody. And it's probably going to be on credit hour production. It's going to be on, you know, you 18, does the department get grants? Did they get a higher last year? What's their faculty to student ratio? Things that have nothing to do with how supposedly inherently important the topic is or valuable. And, and that's the shift, you know, be fascinated in reading this or that thing, make it, find something that makes you stay up an extra hour or two at night because you've got to keep reading. That's wonderful. But outside you and a relatively small group of people, that set of values might not be shared. And more than likely, back to your Red Cross funded article, more than likely the thing you study, if you can make this shift, is really relevant to somebody else too. Those broader things you're going to come back from your specific EG, as Jonathan Smith used to say, that is Petri dish, that example. You know, we have a grant in the department right now that my colleague Mike Altman is a PI for with the, of, uh, the Luce Foundation, and it's called American Examples. The whole point is, can we take early career Americanists who maybe just know that their data is obviously important and invite them to think what broader things about people and groups does your example help you tell us about? And, and thus I come back to, I don't know if you read Benedict Anderson, all kinds of people read Benedict Anderson on how nations work, but none of them were specialists in his field. Like all kinds of people read Judith Butler, but they're not feminist philosophers. They're not gender identity people. Like 
a lot of us more than understand that there's a generalist point to be gained from reading specialists with expertise other than your own, that you can bring back a point to your own field. We all know that, but we have such trouble really living that in our work and training students to be able to do that too. Um, that's what I, I think that shift, like, like probably none of us think we have to be 18th, 19th century European literature experts to read Said's Orientalism. You know, we grant the expertise to him. We read certain parts, maybe a little quicker than others if we don't know the authors, because we're looking for the larger payoff about how discourse works with power. We all know how to do that. I think we were all taught how to read that way in grad school, to be honest, right? But then we become so romanced by the autonomy of our datum, the specialness of our datum, that we end up reverting back to a siloed approach that in this job market is not serving our doctoral students well. It's not lost on me that your call to, um, uh, to accessibility uh, of the larger themes of scholarship is precisely the impetus behind Marshall Post's founding of this conglomeration of podcasts called the New Books Network. <laughs> it's precisely the rippled waves of accessibility. Is it the larger public? Is it undergrad students? Because they're the public too, you know, in my classroom. You know, so you got to pick your audience and uh, work to convey the larger point. Because even among, you know, this group of specialists on Paul, each one is their own specialist, <laughs> you know? But can you figure out how your data lets you say something about how to pick your example again? How do narratives work in communities? Well, I can't read all narratives. Here's one I've read and here's what I've learned from it. And then come back from the front, you know, with your dispatch that we can all put to use in drastically different domains. And like I said, we're already reading Saeed. We're already reading Bourdieu. We're already reading Joan Wallach Scott. We're, like we're all reading Wendy Brown or a whole bunch of us know these names in different scholarly disciplines and that's how we're reading them. So let's train our students to do the same thing. Mm. Fascinating. So uh, let's just say we've entered an alternate universe by who knows what process, uh, some quantum accident somewhere or what have you. And in this universe, I, I stayed in my original degree at the University of Toronto with an English literature major history and philosophy minors didn't discover that I could do this in South Asia never discovered the discipline of religious studies in this current uh, universe that we're in I actually ended up doing a couple of years and leaving school uh, working for a while coming back discovering uh, intro Hindu studies the day it started and it altered the course of my destiny uh, because I was able to to feed those interests under the umbrella of religious studies, which I didn't even know was a discipline actually until that right. fateful day. And, and I'd been at U of T for two or three years before that. Um, so in this alternate university, I stayed in the, the, the literature degree and we just happened to be on the same airplane, right? Say you were flying to the AR or what have you. And, um, you know, um, you, you could sense that I wasn't uh, terribly ideologic or, presumptive so you shared with me very bravely that when i asked hey so what do you do you I'm, I'm a professor oh what field and you actually felt you could share religion you know and and you shared with me that it's the academic study of religion and you've got sort of an empathetic and hopefully relatively intelligent interlocutor who's asking but wait so 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 so, so um 
So Dr. McCutcheon, I get what you're saying that you don't do theology, you don't do spirituality, you don't do priest training and all that. But it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, then you do history and philosophy and sociology and, you know, what, so, so, so then is, is, is the academic center of religion just a combination of all these disciplines or is it its own discipline? Sure, it's its own discipline. Why not? Next question. <laughs> like history is the queen of the disciplines. What do historians do? I love historians. Some of my best friends are historians. Uh, they study the past through careful readings of texts. I'm being flippant. I'm being flippant on purpose. But I mean, wait a second. We all study the past. We all study the past by means of texts, whether it's a written text, whether it's you know a photograph, whether it's architecture. Yeah, like, I mean, wait a second. So the, the high bar that we have to reach to get to be legitimate in the field, I don't even buy that high bar, right? I, I instead buy that there are pragmatic distinctions. We've all got busy lives. There's a lot of stuff to study. Let's break it down into parts and let's call this literature and let's call this, these genres are flexible, plastic things, but yes, let's live with them. Category religion. Yes, let's use that category. Why not? Let's not ontologize it. Let's see it as a historical product itself that groups of people use in different ways to do different things. Ah, so yes, let's not define ourselves by the content, but by the skills. Suddenly now cross-disciplinarity is not such a big deal because we're all studying the past. We're all, right? So to, if I was talking to that seatmate very quickly, I drop into my you know, Ariel 100, that's our designation, Ariel kind of voice, and I want, wouldn't want to sound paternalistic, but I talk about a, an 1893 U.S. Supreme Court case on whether a tomato is a fruit or a vegetable, a real thing. How silly. Well, if you'd imported a couple boatloads of tomatoes from the West Indies and you had to pay tax when they arrived on shore because they were vegetables, and if you knew fruit weren't taxed, and if you knew botanists classified it... All of a sudden, this is a very real thing. There are stakes to this. Show me a classificatory dispute without stakes, and I'll show you that there's no dispute. Nobody cares. But when there's stakes, whether it's a this or a that, suddenly we get very interested in this. If that's curious to someone, then why wouldn't it be curious whether this or that is legitimate Islam? Okay. extremism, political Islam, the way we use these categories. Oh, if that's interesting, well, what happens when we say this is a myth, not a legend? Oh, well, why do we? And a folktale. And oh my, you know, we can really parse these taxonomies out. So I would hope within a relatively short time that that person would realize that this is an interesting way into how people, as I said at the start, sort and negotiate our worlds. And um, you know, show me a, a, a local politician in the US interested in who gets to use which bathroom legitimately. We all know these bathroom bills. And I'll show you there's, there's real stakes in these arm wrestling matches. You know, it's not as silly seemingly as a tomato, though if you're the family who owned all those tomatoes, I'm sure the stakes were pretty high to them too with all that tax money that these are all ways into studying very basic stuff about what it means to be a member of a group, uh, whether you perceive yourself to be on, on top or on the bottom trying to change that. Like understanding how these systems work 
is probably the first step in, in doing whatever it is you want to do within those systems. This tension between um, how you use the word the category of religion is a, is a, a sociocultural phenomenon that's a moving target or a placeholder word that, that has its own history in terms of how it was used versus um, religion anchored in something beyond divine, numinous, sacred, etc. Would you say this is, in the academic setting, is this tension more so a tension in the, the Christian context because of the history of our uh, for our fields, or would you say this is, um, would you say this, uh, is there something particular about the Christian context regarding this tension or not necessarily? I think the, um, the tension is cross-cultural. If by tension we mean, how do groups of people um, allocate resources and prioritize within the group? What techniques are used in the rhetorical realm, as well as in the governance policing realm? It's not all category of religion or not. That's a specific Latin-based designator that comes to us through a certain set of European language families. We see the word in certain groups of people. We don't see it the majority of people worldwide or historical. But nonetheless, I'd say we see cross-culturally techniques to manage similarity and difference within groups. And a management, you know, I'm showing my hands on the screen here, that is a ranked management system, right? Um, that's why I think the category religion is particularly interesting to study. It provides us in this particular European influenced North American setting um, a with a way into that much larger set of problems, right? If we make the shift to see it as a category used in managing similarity and difference, uh, a category used in managing rank, and a specific, let's be frank, a colonial era category that yet continues in this similarity difference management system. Um, so it has a particularness to a certain time and place, yes. But I think what it allows us to study is cross-culturally evident in other societies with other techniques that are used locally to manage, allocate similarity difference. So thank you for that fascinating response. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say in closing, um, anything at all, whether you can wave a wand to change the field, whether you have advice for uh, potential uh, religionists or anything at all you'd like to share? As a um, we're recording this right as the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature's annual conference, our big field. Always happens a week before the U.S. Thanksgiving. So that's just happened uh, ending um, today. I didn't go this year. Seeing photos, tweets. What I would say is, is you know, what we all know, I hope. Um, there's some really gifted early career people, master's degree, PhD students, um, who are really eager and have a lot of energy. And I think the field has to figure out the assistant, associate, and especially the so-called full professors, the graduate directors, and the deans and department chairs have to figure out how to do right by them. Like I'm old enough to work with people who were in high school when I was in my career. Like there are people out there in high school right now who may end up getting PhDs and wanna work in our departments or who may be so interested in the material they want, may wanna do graduate work, but there won't be jobs for them to apply to. I, I just feel like we have to figure out a way to do right by them and to leave them something that 
we're not just going to gobble up ourselves. And so, so much of our conversation was completely unplanned by you and I to go on this route, the shift, the graduate school job market applicability of this thing I keep calling the shift. I really do think that is the overriding issue in the field right now. If we want there to be a field other than uh, undergraduate departments teaching world religion courses for breadth requirements in the business school, you know, so many of our departments are already that. And we can be so much more than that if we just made a little bit of a shift and realized that the skills we're teaching students are of great consequence. So seeing those tweets and photos over the weekend just reinforces for me that um, we really got to do right by them. We need some innovative thinking outside the box. Thank you for this invigorating conversation. It's so astonishingly resonant to my own personal path that uh, one might think you're a plant, but no, none of this conversation was was planned indeed. Uh, this is just where we ended up. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. I, I hope I read your script fine all throughout. Yes, the check is in the middle. <laughs> Speaking of monetizing your skills, yes. <laughs> and now I say thank you, Raj. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was great. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's it's great to get a chance to talk about some of these things. Um, there's so much more to talk about, but these are all hugely important issues. You're most welcome. For those listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Russell uh, McCutcheon, uh, University Research Professor and Chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. We have links in the podcast notes for his academic profile, his personal website, and for um, some of his more um, recent books um, um, on making a shift in the study of religion and other essays, um, and Religion in 50 Words and Religion in 50 More Words, uh, co-written with Aaron Hughes. Um, until next time, keep well, keep listening. Listening and keep contemplating what this thing is called religion. Take care.